Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. All right, tonight we're going to be in Joshua. If you open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1, this is our third week in Joshua. We're going to cover verses 10 through 18. And um, if you all have your outlines you pick up at the door, then we're good to go. It's if you want an outline. But tonight we're going to take the, the, um, the idea of making sure everyone is on board. And we're going to look at that theme right there. Because in the first eight verses or you know, something like that, eight, nine verses we've covered, what we're, what we're seeing now is this idea of corralling everybody together and making sure everybody's going in the right direction. Now we're going to see this whole idea continue with Joshua, the officers, the two and a half tribes that are going to be specifically mentioned. And they all have to be on board with the vision, the vision of going in to the promised land. And I think we all know from experience that for us to get anywhere in life, everybody's got to be on board in the vision. It's kind of, a, a if you think about it, it, it parallels uh, somewhat, not exclusively, but it parallels Acts chapter 2 when they're all in one accord in the upper room. Remember that one right there? Where everybody's going in the right direction, same direction, and the Holy Spirit does something great. So if you think about everyone being on the same team in the right direction, no division whatsoever. Uh, for those of you who watch sports, I played sports all my life and things like that. But in sports, how many know you can't have a ball hog? Any amens on that one right there? Okay, good. It's Eight, eight of you know that. Okay, good. And then you cannot have somebody who's like poisonous in the locker room, right? You can't have that. You can't have somebody who's dividing the team up because we know Jesus made the great statement that a kingdom divided will not, will not stand. And the same holds true in this whole concept of making sure everyone's on board. You know that marriage has to be the same way, correct? And so, you know, th this thing that we have to be in the right direction, all in the same right direction because you can't win. And teams that have people that are poisonous to them, they typically get, get rid of that person. Any amens of that one right there? Now let me tell you something for those of you that hire or any of you that's been fired. No, I'm just joking on that one right there. But when you hire, and you learn this the hard way uh, until you learn it, and that is when you hire somebody, if you want a team that stays together, the first thing you're going to look at is character. Amen to that one? You want to look at a person's character. Now, you may think the second C I'm going to give you is the most important one, and that's competency. But let me tell you, from experience, no. You always hire character first. And then after character, because they've got to have the right moral qualities, because you're going to trust this person to do the job and to be on the team, then from there you look at competency. Can they do this job? Do they have that particular gift ability to do these things and then the third c which you can probably guess is you look at you look at chemistry so it goes character competency chemistry and you kind of look at uh, competency and chemistry kind of right even they're both kind of brothers right there but chemistry can they get along with people because we've all probably been in situations or jobs where you have somebody that doesn't get along with anybody right and that's just a bad thing right there so we're, we're looking at this whole thing right here. Joshua now is the general manager. God is like the boss of the team. And he's trying to get everyone moving in the right direction because guess what they're going to do pretty soon? They're going to go into the promised land. 
They're going to do the very thing they've been traveling a long time for. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at this idea in these eight verses, making sure everyone's on board, and then we'll shoot off with a couple side ideas since this is a verse-by-verse study. So in Joshua chapter 1, let's read verse 10 and verse 11, and it says, Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves. For within three days, say three, you are to cross this Jordan uh, to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it. So in your notes, healthy teams, if you want to fill it in, it says, is direction flows from the top. In your notes, direction flows from the top. It's the first thing I want to say about it. Now, before you think the idea of that statement is an issue of control that the top always controls, not in this case. In this case, it's an issue of submission. And, and don't forget that. Because Joshua is living and living out within a theocracy, not a democracy. Do you hear what I just said? In other words, God is the boss. That's a theocracy. Do you remember? So it flows from the top, from God. Do you remember later on in, um, in Samuel where the people of Israel, they want to be like all the other nations. Remember that? And they say, give us a king. So they shift from a theocracy to a democracy because they want a king. And that's one of the things that was kind of a little bit of a mistake on their part right there because God is the boss. God is the king and all things flow from God. And as a a spiritual leader, this is the one thing, at least for me, I I strive to do. I want to know, is this what God's telling me? Is this the direction God's taking me? Can I back it up with scripture? Because new beginning wasn't my idea and I'm just fortunate enough to be the guy that started this whole thing and ride it out for 31 and a half years. But it all flows from the top. Now, does that make sense? So it's an issue of submission the way we follow God. Now, if you noticed and you read, the, you followed that God commands Joshua in chapter 9. In, um, in verse 9. In verse 10, Joshua tells the officers to go out there and he commands them. And then verse 11, they take the command and they flow and they take it to the camp. Here's what we're going to do. So it flows from God to Joshua, to the officers, and to the camp. But the command came straight from God. So it's a theocracy, not a democracy. But here's the deal. It's always going to be a challenge, isn't it? It's always going to be a challenge to live out a life that's a theocracy, that God is the boss, versus a democracy that you and I are the boss of our life. It's always going to be this issue because, and we know it from Scripture, because in the very beginning we see the the serpent comes and says, hath God said? It will always be the question. And he'll always put that thought in mind. And so Eve, she shifts, as if you really study it out, she shifts from God's the boss to I'm the boss. Because that was a temptation to Eve. You, 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 you could be a God, Eve. You'll be the shot caller of your life. And so in anything that we do in our life, that is really, that's really going to be a challenge at all times. Am I really surrendered to what God says theocracy, or am I going to live out a democracy and kind of choose what I want to do, which 
could be contrary to the word of God. Now, another thought, here we go. How long did Joshua wait before he carries out the command from God to tell the officers who tell the people that we're going to go across this line? How long did Joshua wait to carry out the command? And the answer, look back at verse 10, it says, then Joshua. So how long did he wait? No, 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 no. I know I, know I thoroughly confused you on that one. Okay, just to tell the people, not to cross. He did it right away. It was, it was immediate. Now, <clears throat> have you ever noticed that the, the longer you wait to carry out a command of God, the less likely you are to do it? You ever notice that? How many of you, like me, are professional second-guessers? Raise your hand. I want to know who my team is here. Okay. You're just good at second-guessing it, right? How good are you at talking yourself out of it? And how good are you, how good are you at giving yourself the, what we call the noble-sounding reason why you can't do it after all? You ever think about that? Now, I, I've read different articles on this. It's been a while since I read one, but I was thinking about it as I was looking over the notes again tonight. And you know that when it comes to hospice care, they ask people on their deathbed certain things, and one of the things that people on their deathbed, you know what they have consistently? Is they have regret. They have regret that there was things that they knew they were supposed to do in their life, and they didn't do it. And they didn't carry it out. And so I say that to say that Joshua, it says, God says, do this, and he does it right away. And there's things in our life, I mean, look, we're all going to regret something, right? And we're all going to talk ourselves out of But the less of those things that we have at the end of our life, the better. Because we did what we were supposed to do with our lives. Look, the longer you wait, the harder it is to do it. I'll give you another classic example. When Moses is 40 years old, is he gung-ho about delivering Israel? Yes, he kills the Egyptian, remember? He's got this great plan, I'm going to kill the Egyptians one guy at a time. Remember that plan? Dumb plan, but that's what he's going to do. And then 40 years later, after he wanders through the desert for 40 years, and God says at the burning bush, hey, I want you to go back and deliver the people. Did Moses, did he sit there and go, I can't wait? No. He's very reluctant to carry out the plan because the longer you wait when God tells you to do something, the less likely you are to carry it out. The more likely you and I are to talk ourselves out of it. Now, let's move on. Let me give you a couple of truths there in your notes. The first one is, three is the number of resurrection. Three is the number of resurrection. Now, now let's go back with your right answer. How many days before they're going into the promised land at this point? It's three, that's right. So three is the number of resurrection. They're going to go in in three days, guys. It's going to be new life for these guys. So I have a question for you. They've been traveling for 40 years. Now, yes, we know technically massive generation of them died off because they didn't have the faith to believe the, the 10 spies who were, or the two spies. But now there are some of them have been traveling for 40 years. Let's say you've been traveling 40 years through that desert and now you're knocking at the door of the promised land and they say in three days, we're going in. What would you be thinking? What would you be feeling? Excitement? Joy? Fear of the unknown? All the above? Here's my better question. They've been traveling 40 years. 
Why wait three more days? Why wait three more days? Now, I'm going to answer that question at the end of tonight and make you wait. But I will answer that question at the end, okay? Now, next uh, bullet point tonight, and that is, God brings you in, uh, brings you out to bring you in. God brings you out to bring you in. Notice he told them, he says, that you are to cross this Jordan to go what? You're going to go in. Now, keep your marker right here, just very quickly. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Turn to your left a little bit. Deuteronomy 6, and I'm going to read the verse so you can grasp this concept and this idea. And look at verse 23. When you're there, say, I'm there. Verse 23 says, He brought us out from there in order to bring us in. That's right. To give us the land which He had sworn to our fathers. Does God bring us out to bring us in? And the answer is yes. Now, what is the hard part, hardest part about God bringing us out to bring us in? Is that sometimes it takes forever in the in-between phase. Amen to that one? Now, but know that God brings us out. He doesn't bring us out to leave us hanging or say, well, good luck with that one now. But the hard part for us is like, okay, I'm in the in-between. You brought me out, but I'm not in anywhere yet. And that's where we can get a little bit dicey and lose our faith a little bit or doubt or maybe I'm going the wrong direction. But that's always the toughest phase is that in-between phase. But understand this, that God always brings us out to bring us in. Question, have you ever been repositioned in life by God? Has God ever brought you out, meaning has He ever brought you out of something and brought you into something to fulfill His purpose? And it's always to fulfill His purpose, right? Yes, there's always a God attachment to it. Otherwise, it's a good idea, not a God idea. So God is always moving in these directions. He's always repositioning. So He's brought us out to bring us in to something. Now, let's read on. Joshua, uh, chapter 1, verse, verse 12, 13, says this. To the Reubenites and to the Gadites and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word which Moses, the serpent of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God gives you rest and will give you this land. Now, now we have a special message for Reuben, Reubenites, Gadites, half-tribe of Manasseh. So, in your notes, healthy teams, next fill in, people are held accountable. Now we see that in healthy teams, people are held accountable. Now, which is exactly what most people don't like. Any amen to that one? People don't like to be held accountable, but they should be held accountable. Now, what's going on here? Let me give you the what. Then we'll give you some, some application on that. Joshua now is reminding the Reubenites, the Gadites, which are two tribes of the twelve, and half-tribe Manasseh, which you remember the two sons of Joseph, half-tribe Manasseh is one of the half-tribes, he's reminding them of what they signed up for. Because they did sign up for something in the past with Moses. If you want to jot, just jot down Deuteronomy 3, that's where you'll find it, chapter 3 of Deuteronomy. But let me tell you what happened. Moses has a conversation with these tribes. Because these tribes have come up to Moses. And they said, Moses and now they're in what's called the Transjordan, which means the other side of the Jordan. The Gadites, the Reubenites, half-tribe Manasseh, they have a lot of livestock. And the land there is really good for livestock. And so they approach Moses and they ask him, we like this land. We don't need to cross the Jordan. We don't need to go in the promised land. We like it here. Can we have this land? 
Moses agrees to it on one stipulation. And the stipulation is this. You could stay here. This is your land. But your warriors and your soldiers, when we all cross this Jordan River to go in the promised land, your warriors and soldiers, they must come with us. They must go fight with us until all the tribes of Israel have got possession of their portion of the promised land. And when that all happens, then your warriors can come back and you can dwell in that land. That was the statement. They agreed to it. So what is, and they made the promise, we'll do that. So what's Joshua doing now? Well, now they're knocking. They're knocking on the door. They're about to cross the Jordan. And now he's reminding them, remember the promise you made? Remember that conversation you had with Moses? Now is the time that you must keep your promise. Okay. God's a promise keeper, isn't he? Every time you see a rainbow in the sky, that's a promise of God. Remember that? Yes, we remember that? You see, when you and I look at the rainbow in the sky, and every I have performed about 150 weddings plus in my life. I've probably performed 200 funerals in my life. Um, but every time you perform a wedding, I will typically talk, when it comes to the rings, about the rainbow. And the rainbow, God put in the sky, you know, as the light goes through and refracts and sorts out the colors, and you see the colors of the rainbow. The rainbow is a promise from God that God would never flood the earth again. That's what he says, that's my promise. And every time you see the rainbow, it's a promise. Now, when I perform the ceremonies and we do the ring part, I always tell the couple, I said, you know, and I talk about the rainbow and the promise of God. From God's perspective, looking down, everything I've read, that God looked down and you looked at the top down of rainbow, it's a circle. But when you look at a rainbow from our perspective, it's, it's a half circle. But from God's perspective, it's a full circle. And the full circle is a promise. And so I say, you need to look at your rings often. Because that ring that you're putting on your finger, that's a circle. And you're making a promise. If a wedding is anything, it's a bunch of promises made for $30,000 over a four-hour period. Amen to that. No, I'm just joking. But that's about what it is. But, um, but you make promises. I told you I performed 150-plus weddings. I'm probably batting about 75% of those marriages that stayed together. As a pastor, I'm thankful for 75%, but you'd really like 100%. Do you know how many times I've performed marriages? They're so in love. They're telling you how much they love each other. Oh, my gosh, I'll, I'll love you forever. A couple years later, they come into my office and need an appointment, and they come in different cars. They sit in two chairs. She's leaning this way, and he's leaning that way. And you sit there, and you wonder, what in the world happened? What happened? So the staff is reading this book. Charlie, Charlie Bacar has us reading this book. It's on marriage. And so I start reading the book, and you know, we've all read books on marriage, I'm sure. And in the first chapter, um, it talks about, and this is not true of everyone, but I bet you it's a lot of people on marriage. And I thought, I can totally relate to that. He says that 
in the first six years of most marriages, did you have a lot of adjusting and you could, this really could be some problems here. And you know what? In all the years I've been talking to people, that's about right. I know in my marriage, that's like 120% right. We had a lot of problems in our first six years. It was like, it's funny that he said six years. I go, that's exactly yes. Six years. But then if you work it, work it, work it, and work it, and work out all these things, you end up with a great marriage that can go long term. And I thought that's true. Because that's exactly what happened. In our, and not that my marriage has to be the qualifier for the statement. But in all the other things I've seen, that's true too. You, if you just work it, work it. You see, the idea of this promise that marriage is a covenant. It's a promise that you make. And it's not going to be easy. But you look at your rings often. Because you made a promise to this person and to each other. And let me tell you one of the biggest mistakes we make in working out marriage problems. And this is a common problem. When one party says, when they start living this, then I will. Then you're never going to live it. You're never going to live it. Because somebody has to start living it. Somebody has to be the Jesus Christ character in the story. Because you and I both know that none of us, there's not one of us that woke up one day and said, in our youth say, I can't wait to be a Christian. None of us said that. We all had to be wooed into it, right? So Jesus had to be Jesus, and we had to come to him, wooed into it. And then we started to take on the characteristics of our Messiah and Savior as we followed him. Think about that concept right there. But you make a promise, and you go through with that promise. Now, Joshua... He's reminding Reuben, Gad, half-tribe Manasseh, you guys made a promise. And because you made a promise, you got you to keep your promise. Because we're here. We're at the Jordan River, guys. And so you and Moses had a conversation, and we're going to keep the promise, and we're going in. Now, let's read on. Verse 14. It says, your wives, your little ones. He's, he's still talking to these people. Your, your wives, your little ones, and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you be beyond the Jordan. But you shall cross before your brothers in battle array all your valiant warriors and shall help them. Now, bullet point in your notes that we'll pull from here in application because we already explained what that meant. But the application is whatever God gives us will include battles. Any amens on that? Anything God gives you, it's going to have some battles uh, included in it. Now, Sidebar question, then let's get into the statement. You'll have battle. Question, who's going in the land first in battle? Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They're going in ahead of everybody else. Can you believe that? They got to go first in there. Now, back to the issue. Everything that God has for us is good. Amen? But everything good God has for us is going to include battles along the way, right? It's always going to be that way. This is what gets me. It's like, man, um, you ever heard this? And you, I know you've heard it. And every so often when I hear it, like, I go, you just don't understand. You ever heard this one? Christian, you know, Christianity is just a crutch for weak people. You ever heard that one? I'm thinking, are you out of your mind? I go, this thing is one of the toughest things I've ever done. Anybody with me? It was easy to sin. Anybody remember that? It was like, there was no pressure. Oh, we're going to go sin. I'll be there, okay? There was no pressure. It's, it's pressure now because guess what? Once you become a Christian, does Satan go after you? You switch teams, huh? If you're married, does he go after your marriage? 
Oh, yeah. Does he, if you have kids, does he go after your kids? Oh, you, you better believe. Does he go after your career? Does he go after your business? Does he go after your health? You better be, He's going to go after everything. Well, Jim, how do you know all this? Experience and the book. Amen? What does the book say? Genesis 2. God brings Adam a wife. Genesis 3. Satan goes after the marriage. Right? Genesis 4. Satan goes after the children. Cain kills Abel. Remember that? From the get-go... You see how Satan goes at, look, I'm a blessed guy. My kids are what we call pastor's kids. You ever seen any crazy pastor's kids? Yes. Oh, you don't need to say yup, okay? No, I'm joking. But you know, and my kids are not perfect. You know that. They're going through their stuff and everything, but they're all adults. They're all married, and they're all serving God. So I'm a blessed guy. You know, they grew up under a flawed dad. You know, not that you guys are perfect, but ain't, no, I'm just joking. But understand, there will be battles, Right? So why do we act like it's some foreign thing when we face a battle? Why do we say, oh, God, get me out of this? He's not going to get you out of it that fast. Because these battles, battle test you for the future, do they not? If you don't go through them, you will not be battle tested for the future in your life. Now, verse 15, watch this. Until the Lord gives your brothers rest... Ah, stop right there, real quick sidebar. So they have to go in, and they got to fight, and they're going to fight until the Lord gives your brothers rest. This is a sidebar issue. I just wrote it down this afternoon. I was going to read it again. I go, isn't that interesting? Just real quick, this, this, and I'll get to what I'm going to say. You're going to fight until the Lord gives you rest, right? Okay. You're going to fight until the Lord gives you isn't that a picture of our life? Christianity? We're going to battle and battle and battle and battle until the Lord, either rapture or death, go to heaven, gives us rest. It's exactly the way it works. It's going to be a battle. Now, let me read on that verse here. Brothers, gives, as he gives you, and they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then... You shall return to your own land and possess, they still talking to Reuben, Gad, half tribe Manasseh, and possess that which Moses, the serpent of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise, verse 16. They answered, Joshua saying, all that you have commanded us, we will say do. And wherever you send us, we will say go. Say do and go. Okay, good. Verse 17. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you, Josh. Only may the Lord your God be with you, Joshua, as he was with? Moses. Oh, yeah. Now, real quick, sidebar, quick, quick. Joshua's a picture of Jesus, right? The people say, we'll do what you say, and we'll go where you tell us to go. Thank you. Is that a follower of Christ or what? If Joshua's a picture of Jesus, Yeshua, they say, well, do what you say, and we'll go where you tell us to go. Is that a picture of Christianity? Jesus will do what you say, I will do what you say, and I will go where you tell me to go. That's an exact picture of Christianity right there. And let me talk to you from my heart as a pastor now, so you understand a pastor's mentality, at least on this, uh, on this issue here. Every pastor in America would love 
to have a church filled with people who do the two things they did here. We'll do something. Every pastor would love to have a church filled with people who actually do something and serve somewhere. Every pastor. But that's not all. Because did you catch it in verse 17 at the end? They said, we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Now stop right there. Every pastor would love a church full of people who do something, who serve. But also notice when they say that, are they praying for Joshua? Say yes. And every pastor would love to have a church that's praying, but also praying for their pastor. Because your pastors are always praying for you. Did you know that? Do you realize that? They're always doing that. Now, just think about this. Joshua is what we would call in baseball a five-tool player. You guys know? Some of you know what that means? Please, somebody say yes, please. He's, he's got all these. <laughs> you know? Okay, say so, okay. Five-tool. He's got all these abilities, man. He can run, throw, hit, hit for power, the whole shot. He's a five-tool player spiritually. But can Joshua succeed in the mission without people going out and serving or praying for him? Can he succeed? And no matter how gifted he is. doesn't matter how good the guy can do so. doesn't matter. How, how, he, he needs these things. Let me tell you what I appreciate, what every pastor appreciates. I, I just appreciate on Sunday mornings people coming here and serving in serving positions. When I know there's millions of Christians that never came back to church after COVID across America and just sleeping in. And I appreciate all the people that come to serve. If you ever want to watch action, real action and commitment, get here at about 7.15, 7 in the morning and watch the people get here and all the different things they're doing to prepare a service for you to enjoy it at 9 o'clock or at 10.30. Come and watch it happen. I, I appreciate that, that th these people are doing it. But let me tell you what I appreciate just as much. You can ask my wife. I periodically, well, we pray at night, but in those prayers, I, I periodically pray for pastors across America. I, I'm a real fortunate guy. I am blessed. I'm one of the 10% senior pastors that got to see growth and things grow and experiences. Do you know most of the churches in America, 90% are probably 100 people in, or less? Did you know that? Never, never nullify a church of that side because they're still ministering to people and there's more of those churches than there are churches that are mega churches. Never, never nullify those. They're doing good. But I pray for those pastors and this is what I pray. I pray, God, I pray for those pastors that have been so faithful for decades and they've never seen growth. They've never experienced it. But they've been faithful to the word and they're preaching away every Sunday. And then I pray, God, would you just let them experience a bump in growth in their life? Would you double that attendance in their church? I don't know if God's going to do that or not, but I pray for those guys. 
because they're, they're pushing and they're preaching and they're doing it. You know, and so somebody's got to be praying for these people. I'm a fortunate guy. After I preach messages on Sunday, when somebody comes up to me and they tell me, Pastor, thank you for that message, whatever, like, I really appreciate that. Now, you don't have to all mob me on Sunday, okay? I'm not saying that, to, okay, if you want. No, I'm just joking. But I really appreciate that. And then whenever they tell me something like that, at the end of it, I will typically say, would you keep, would you, I go, keep, pray for me, okay? And she goes, oh, and, and they almost always say, oh, I do, Pastor. Oh, I do. And I really appreciate that. Because what you don't know about pastors, and we all go through it, trust me, I know, you're no different than me, but pastors are in front of people and they're targets. Do you know that? No, do you really know that? They get, pastors get hit hard by people, sometimes around, I don't know if you've ever seen me get in a face-to-face confrontation around this square right here, but I've had them over the years, right after a service. But pastors get hit hard. And I've, and thank God I have pretty thick skin, and, you know, and I just have thick skin. But, um, but I appreciate the prayer. See, every pastor in this country would love to have a church filled with people who serve and that pray for him. I'm a fortunate guy. There's a lot of people serve here, and I know a lot of you pray for me. And that's what they're doing for Joshua. They say, we'll do it. And may the Lord be with you like he was with Moses. We're going to pray for you. Joshua, I appreciate that. Now, verse 18. Let's drive this thing home. Anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words in all that you command him shall be put to death, only be strong. That's nice, right? (laughs) If if somebody doesn't do what you say, Josh, we're going to kill the guy, okay? (laughs) Now, let me, let me give you the statement in your notes. Healthy teams eliminate divisive people. The flip side is, if you're divisive, quit being divisive, okay? No matter, wherever you're at. Now, they say, we'll kill the person who doesn't follow your commands. And somebody who asked me, Jim, have you ever wanted to kill a volunteer that didn't follow? No, not me, not ever. No comment on that one right there. Um, Let me make a statement that we will explore vastly when we get to chapter 6 of Joshua. And here's a statement. And the statement says, never underestimate the damage that one person can do to the organization. Never underestimate that. I've experienced it. And when the first time I ever taught verse by verse, not ever taught the text in Josh 6, I remember as I was teaching through it, that statement came up in commentaries and we were experiencing that very thing 20 years ago in our church. So I know it from experience. When I get to chapter 6, we'll expand it. Um, Some of you were here at that time. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't need to rehash that whatsoever. But never underestimate the damage one person can do to the organization. That's why when you have a person like that, you have to eliminate the cancer. Because they will take the ship down. Any amens on that? You know you have to. And by the way, if you're a boss and you don't deal with that situation, then all the other employees will lose respect for you and think they can do whatever they want to do too. Any amens? 
So you have to be a strong, good leader and make the hard calls. And by the way, when you do that and eliminate that, there will be some people will take the side of that person who will lie about you and you have to be thick-skinned enough to stay strong enough to know that, no, this is the way the ship is going. That person's causing division. If you're going to leave with them, then leave with them. But we're going this way, and I'm not going to bend to that. Any amens on that? you got to have some thick skin, and you got to be tough in those situations. Is it fun? No. Is it fun to be lied about? My experience? No. And the lies are crazy, my friends. The things they make up about you are crazy. Now... Now, remember I said it way back when? We're going to talk about why three more days? Yes. Yeah, I'm out of time. Let's go. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> okay, why three more days? Now, I'm going to give you the three reasons why three more days. We'll drive this home. In your notes, number one, to prepare provisions. They're at the Jordan, and they go, in three days, we're going to go. And this is why they wait three days. This is the first reason. To prepare provisions. Now, you find that back in Joshua 1.11, and I think that's in your notes, too. Now, let's think about this. If Jim Del Campo was leading and they said, uh, you know, prepare provisions, I think what I would, my first thought would be, okay, officers, go into the camp, round up as much money as possible. We got to buy a bunch of sea dews and maybe some pontoon boats because we got to cross the Jordan. But Joshua doesn't do that, right? Because question, what has Joshua seen 40 years earlier? He saw a Red Sea part, didn't he? Experience is always a good thing, huh? He knows, well, gosh, if God parts the Red Sea, he's going to part it. And by the way, the Jordan's overflowing this time of year. We'll talk about it as we go along. But he knows, oh, God could part this thing. No problem whatsoever. It's good to have experience and leadership that's been there before. Now, provisions. Why provisions? Well, they're going to need what? Food, correct? Now, think about that statement. They will need food as they go into battle. Why do they need it? Because we know that the moment they step into the promised land, what will stop? The manna. The manna. The moment they step into the land, the manna stops. So guess, application, guess what? There comes a time when you and I have to take a little bit more responsibility in our life and not just expect God, give me, give me, give me, do for me, do. Any amens? That was the, one of the big problems around the golden calf time, Exodus 32. Remember they said, let us go back to Egypt. It was better. Than, remember that? Because remember, because wasn't Pharaoh feeding them? But they had forgot they'd been slaves every day for 400 years. Isn't that crazy? But what do they want? They said, we can't take, we can't take care of ourselves. We need to go back and have Pharaoh take care of us. And God is saying, no, you got to learn to take care of yourself. You got to learn to feed yourself. You've got to begin to grow up now spiritually. You've got to do these things. So they're preparing provisions to cross. Now, the second reason why three days is to save a soul. Number two in your notes, to save a soul. Now, this is going to be the cool one next week. That's Joshua chapter 2, soul, S-O-U-L, to save a soul. Joshua chapter 2, next week we're going to go into detail on this one. There's a woman, and by the way, the first city they're going to take is Jericho. The city of Palms, Jericho. So they're going to take Jericho, and Jericho, like any fortified city back then, has walls around it built up on a tell area like that. Uh, tell means just like a little plateau area or higher. That's what tell, like tell of Eve, that's what that means. Um, but there's a woman that lives in Jericho, and her name is? 
Rahab, yeah. Now, Rahab, ex-prostitute. What changed her life? You're going to find out next week that she's heard of the wonders of God. She's heard of the miracles that were happening through Moses' life by Yahweh God in the deliverance from Pharaoh. She's heard all that stuff. She's heard it. And when she heard that, living in a pagan culture, idol worshiper, she turns her life from idol worship and she becomes a believer in Yahweh. You'll see it all next week. And in doing that, she turns away from her old way of sin into a new way of life. By the way, when we become a Christian and the Spirit of God comes to live with us, should there not be some kind of evidence of transformation? And there's evidence of this person's life. But she's placed her faith in Yahweh. And so guess what? We've got to wait three more days, prepare provisions. But there's a lady living in Jericho. And she's a believer. We've got to make sure that lady's going to be okay. And so three days, the spies go in, the two spies, and they find this lady, the whole shot and everything, and she's going to be saved. She's going to be okay. So God always looks to save a soul. Now, that's the second. The third thing, third reason why three days is to consecrate themselves. And you find that in Joshua 3 and verse 5. Consecrate basically just means to set apart to be holy. And we're to consecrate our... God consecrates plus we're to consecrate. There's, it's a two-pronged thing here in Scripture. Now, it's the idea, too, the, this in, in, in a setting. You could use this term. It's like a cooking term to cook something. Um, have you ever... Have you ever eaten something not quite cooked right? Yes. Yeah? I have. It wasn't a fun night. Did you cook a bad meal or something like that? Is that why you're... Oh, we're, no comment. Okay, good. So I was about 20 years old. I had this happen twice in my, when I was 20. And this is like eight years ago. <laughs> so do you remember H. Salt Fish and Chips yeah. in Corona? Remember that? Yeah. There was one in Corona on Main Street. And I used to like to go eat there because I knew the girl from high school and she'd give me free food. <laughs> it was great. So I go there one night. It was like a, like a Friday night or Saturday. It was something. And I got the right at closing, and they didn't have any cooked already. Remember they used to have those right in front of you right there? So they had to cook it for me. I think they wanted to get out quick. And so they cooked it quick. And I took it home. And I ate it. And I knew as I ate, I go, you know, it doesn't quite taste like it normally does. And I douse it with ketchup. That's what I do, because that's what normal people do with fried fish, right? Um, and that night, was a real fun night. I felt bloated all night. I did not sleep all night. It took all night before it exited. And then I felt good again. But that's what things that aren't cooked quite right do to you. They cause a lot of pain. God says, consecrate yourself. We've got to cook you. You've got to mature. You've got to walk holier. And then if you do that, I'm going to do great wonders. 
Sometimes we think we're more ready than we really should think. That God wants us to walk a little holier so he can do great wonders in our life. I was sharing this with somebody just the other day, and I, this is the, always the illustration I remember. I remember, this goes back pff, over 30 years ago, that there was this person at the church I came from where I was a student ministries pastor before I planted this church. And he stated, I remember him saying this, he said, um, God told me, meaning himself, he said, that my, he's only been saved six months. My six months of salvation are like six years to somebody else. In other words, he's telling me how mature he was in the Lord in six months. That's, that's how fast God was growing him. Of course, I didn't believe it one bit. Because you can't believe stuff like that. Because you see, God has to take it to the oven. And God's got to cook you. And got to cook you thoroughly. Because if he doesn't cook you thoroughly and cook me thoroughly for the next thing in our life, we're going to cause a lot of pain in people's lives, in the ministry. And we've got to be fully prepared. He says, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow I will do wonders among you. I will do wonders. And that's a third reason why God says, three more days, Joshua, three more days. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text that really did happen. They really did march. There really is evidence of all these things in history. Thank you. Lord, I pray that whatever impacted us or imprinted upon us, let it stick to us. Let it stick to us, God. And we thank you for your word. In the midst of a culture that is so mixed up upside down, we have your word, your guiding truth in our life. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray and we all said, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.